Hello and welcome to episode 14 of the Bike Karma podcast. This time we check in with Joe Doherty. We look at BMX 101 and how this style of bicycles fits into the evolutionary tree of the history of bicycles. We also check in with Chris Brown as we go on a ride trying to move a washing machine by bicycle in the middle of winter in New England. Sprinkle in with that a number of random roadside thoughts and reflections, and you'll have episode 14 of the Bike Karma podcast. Thanks a lot for coming along for the ride. Here we go. Time for another thought from the road. Here I am out on one of my normal routes, and I just realized that I've named Roadkill and look for it each time I go by. When I first met Posse, he had just been hit and he smelt kind of rank. And now Posse is petrified almost, almost like leather, just a little strip of leather on the side of the road. I've seen him everywhere in between that fresh kill to the little scrap of preserved leather that he is now. I wonder if other people who bike think about stuff like this. Anyway, thoughts from the road. When I was a kid, the new and up and coming BMX bikes were the coolest bikes around. They started a whole movement in pop culture. And yet, among some people, they got a reputation of being just for kids, maybe because of the small wheels. Today with Joe Doherty, we're going to shatter that myth. We're going to look at BMX bikes from the inside out and the outside in. We're going to see the place that these bikes have in the greater story of bicycles. So without further ado, here is the BMX segment. So today we're going to talk about BMX bikes which is a subject I've really wanted to get into for a while. The whole point of the Bike Karma podcast is to bring all kinds of bikers together because there is something beneath the whole bottom of it that relates us all together. We have this connection about loving bikes. And with me today is Joe Doherty, and he is going to handle some of the BMX questions that I have. But first, I'm going to just tell him about my experience with BMX, and we'll work from there. So when I was a kid, 10 speeds were on the way out. The drop handlebars, the older kids had them. I was growing up in the 70s and along came these banana seat bikes that some kids still had from the 60s and earlier 70s. But the big thing was the BMX bikes. They looked more like motorcycles and the big decision for me came one day when I went to Benny's with my dad and I was right on the edge of getting another bike and they had a mountain bike sitting there, and right next to the mountain bike was a BMX 24-inch bike. It took me weeks to figure out which bike I should get, and I had to save up my money anyway. But So I'm standing there looking at this Murray BMX with 20, it was just the sexiest looking thing ever. It had pads, it was gold and black like all the cool kids' bikes had, and then there was a blue mountain bike, which was so practical, and it was bigger looking and my parents pushed me towards the mountain bike 
because they thought it was more adultish. They said the tires are smaller on the BMX bikes. And this is something that a lot of people from outside the BMX world say. You know, those 20 inch tires can take a person way up into their six foot range. So we're gonna go and shatter some myths today and hopefully get through so that people can connect with BMX bikes. So welcome, Joe. Thank you. Well, your uh, your parents' misconception about BMX bikes is, is probably very common, but uh, BMX bikes can be anywhere from 20 inch to 24 inch. That's the common size. But 20 inch wheel bikes can be used for really a rider up to up in the six foot four range because the wheel size doesn't necessarily need to change, but the frame size can change. So you can accommodate for that height by purchasing a, a bike that has a longer top tube, higher bars, uh, and still use that same wheel size. A lot of where they were coming from back in those days, I think they went to the Schwinn bike store at one point, and the way Schwinn would make their money uh, with their dealers is they would say, you come back as a family, as you grow, you grow into a new bike. And you would start with the little tires, and then you would move up to the next size, and then you would move up to the next size. And it was a great way to keep people coming back and going into new size tires and all this stuff. What they didn't tell you about was the geometry of the bike. So you could have a very tall person, and if the geometry on the bike is appropriate, and the, the whatever they're actually using the bike for is appropriate for the frame type and the tire size, then a big person is gonna fit on that. So the 20 inch tires are not just for kids, even though a lot of kids' bikes have smaller tires. So that's the first misconception. Let's smash it. Nah. Smashed? <laughs> smashed. We can absolutely smash it. Uh, back in the 70s into the 80s, I would say probably more the early 80s, the professional bike racers, which were more from, uh, mostly from California, they actually rode bikes that were grossly undersized, even though these guys were 6'1", 6'2". You could ride any bike if you put your mind to it and Absolutely. make it go fast and maneuver it. As the sport picked up speed, you know, there was a little more money in the sport. So there was the, the opportunity to get away from that mass bike and make more of a, a custom bike. So these pros could start riding bikes that rather than having uh, an 18 and a half inch top tube could now be a, a more comfortable 20 inch top tube, which later on down the road in the 90s could become as long as a 22 inch top tube. Now, hopefully we don't lose any of our hardcore BMX listeners during this conversation. But what I'm trying to do here is I'm just trying to bring everybody in to look behind the curtain of the BMX world. So if we look at the family tree of BMX, we basically have no BMXs in the 50s, maybe a proto BMX in the 60s. And then we had the muscle bikes take off and a lot of the kids were doing BMX type activities on those, those polo bikes, banana seat bikes. And then sometime, when would you say the first BMX bike actually happened? I understand exactly what you're talking about. There's, uh, there's video starting to surface now of BMX actually occurring in Europe back in the 60s. 
as to where it really uh, was late 60s and into the 70s and not until the late 70s before the first before the first uh, sanctioned events were actually going on. So it was underground before it was mainstream. Correct. So so yeah, it, until that happened and until it became publicized through through magazines, that was the main vehicle for for getting the word out about BMX. It, we were all kind of stuck with these standard size bikes, whether it was a Schwinn Stingray or or some kind of modified bike that was meant to emulate a motocross bike. A motorized bike so so, so yeah it, it's um, I would say it started to change in right about when organized sanctioned racing occurred in the late 70s and into the early 80s uh, that's when you saw the greatest changes in more formal bikes more more BMX specific parts being made and not as much adapting if you will so when you first were able to walk into a bike shop and get a BMX bike in most neighborhoods, what what year would you say that would be? Early 80s. Early 80s. Early 80s, yeah. And I remember, you know, people who were into it had the magazines, but we were flooded in popular culture. When you saw a cool teenage kid on a bike, they were on BMXs, you know, at that point. And that's, look back in the movies, you know, it's like, all of a sudden it's like that's the one you should be on if you're cool that's true it's very true it's uh i grew up in a very small town in connecticut so i I wouldn't necessarily say it was it was uh, cool that we were riding bikes that you could actually that you could actually buy in a in a store quite yet but it was recognized as definitely something unique uh which is which is great but the bikes definitely were something different i guess you could assimilate bmx with with surfing you know it was one of those things that was a california sport seeing it in connecticut was a little a little different a little Uh, surreal yeah absolutely and that's when the tracks started to pop up and we're talking the first tracks in connecticut uh, now i could be off by a year or two but the very end of the 70s into the early 80s there were there were quite a few tracks in connecticut bmx tracks i'm sorry and that's when it became more mainstream and and more kids were demanding you know variety in in bikes and not just department store bikes so i think the bike shops recognized that and they started to bring those type of bikes in and ordering bikes a lot of a lot of ordering so bmx bikes we're talking B stands for bicycle, M stands for moto, and the X stands for cross. So bicycle motocross. What they're trying to emulate is if you take away the bicycle, it's trying to emulate the motocross, which was motorcycles going through these dirt courses for the most part. Lots of hills, lots of bumps, very exciting looking, very lots of ups and downs and going around and putting your foot down as you go around a corner and stuff like that. Some amazing looking stuff. This is adding a B on the front of it is doing that without the motor. But you leave the motor in, so it's bicycle motocross. You've got, usually it's characterized by the, the front handlebars have a bar across the front and then there's a pad there. What's that all about? Uh, Why is that? Because I always thought that was cool. I had my dad weld a bar onto my banana seat bike just so it would look more like a BMX. I had no idea what that was about. Is it just for strength in the it, handlebars or what was it about? Yeah, it was, it was definitely for strength in my opinion. A couple episodes back, I talked to Jim Barnard 
about um, muscle bikes and how the end of the muscle bikes was basically the beginning of the BMX and he talked about he was doing BMX type activities on his and his bike just kept breaking. So when you look at BMX bikes, you know, the word bulletproof comes to mind. You know, it's not just a look. You know, you can make a bike look like a road bike, you can make a bike look like a BMX bike, but really when you when you talk about the quality bikes, you're talking about things that got a reputation of being able to handle some massive abuse, being able to land jumps without breaking apart and snapping. Actually, uh, surprisingly, steel was was obviously they were the first bikes, but it did not take long for aluminum to be introduced to the racing part of the community. But it wasn't durable. But some of the steel wasn't durable either, because what happened is they were using thin wall tubing, and the most common problem you'd find with early '80s bikes were that the forks would, would rake out, you know, you'd, you'd land and they would bend out, or you would notice a, after a, a couple hard landing, landings, you'd notice a crease behind the head tube on the top and bottom where you've actually shifted the head tube because you've cre you've creased the frame, you've, you've actually landed so hard that you've folded it. Yeah, you folded you, you it. Folded like it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and a lot of that came from, you know, we started to introduce gaps. You know, you're jumping gaps. And as you're learning to jump a gap, maybe you don't make it over the gaps. So your back wheel hangs up and thus the term 50-50, the back half of the bike is behind the landing of the jump and the front half is in front. And that spreads the bike right out. And, and so, uh, so the improvements came quickly because the manufacturers recognized that you know we couldn't have disposable bikes if we wanted the sport to grow I'm, I'm sure that was a thought so they started to use I would imagine thicker tubing and they started to use gussets underneath the top tube and behind the head tube so that helped the situation as well and thicker forks so they could handle the abuse thicker forks and steer tubes I should say it could handle the abuse of some hard landings and in these 50-50s and kids jumping off of uh, cinder blocks and wood. So BMX actually helped the evolution of all the different types of styles of bikes that came after that. Some of the innovations that you're talking about in terms of durability led to us being able to have downhill bikes and all mountain bikes and uh, trial bikes and all these different bike innovations that came out uh, had a little bit of baptism by BMX, I guess. Yeah, I never really thought about it that way because, you know, obviously I was in a BMX bubble. It does make sense. between you know 80 it, you know the early 80s and and the 90s it uh the bikes transformed incredibly as well as a lot of new bike manufacturers coming to the market uh, because they they recognize the need for specific types of bikes uh, and i suppose it did carry over to mountain bike because um, mountain bikes they probably didn't realize that um at the time when they were really coming onto the scene that mountain bikers may want to catch air too. 
<laughs> and 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 they may they may fifty fifty some things and, and you know I I'm sure that's where the evolution of shocks and and you know hardtail started to started to wane away but um, but and, yeah and like sense. you said a lot of the people who grew up with BMX grew into mountain bikers as they got older oh folks. yeah yeah there there are quite a few but that was more in the nineties when and um, when you know, biking was, was BMXing. Yeah, it, it became pretty lucrative in the mid nineties and, uh, and then it started to die off. And I, I think the BMXers that were in their twenties realized it was money to be made in an adult sport, which would be the new sport of mountain bike, uh, downhill mountain biking and four cross and all these these different ways to compete on a mountain bike so so some of the guys shifted over to that i'm not sure it's necessarily because they loved it or because they realized that you know careers only last so long and maybe this is something they should jump into because they had the skill for sure they had the bike handling skill and the no fear aspect so just to backstep just a, a minute early stages of bmx the oldest class used to be 16 and over. So that quickly changed through the 90s from 16 and over as the oldest class, as the oldest age group to 17 and over, to 18 and over, to 20 and over. And now in the contemporary BMX world, they on 20 inch bikes go to 46 and over so it's been it's been quite a uh, quite a transformative age in in bmx you know i should say you know history overall it's just uh, you know talent is being extended far beyond what we ever would have expected in the early 90s if we saw a 35 year old riding a bike we thought that's insane this, mm -hmm. this this guy's gonna kill himself um but now some of the fastest guys out there are in their early early 30s and there are plenty of quick guys that are that are 46 and over why does that make me feel good <laughs> it should it should make you feel good it should make you feel, you feel great geez you know I, I know guys that are 50 years old that are still riding some pretty crazy trails you know trail trail riding that's a that's another big part of our sport now and uh, and they they ride as if they were twenty back in back in the early days of the sport. I mean, there's so many different ways to come at BMX. You know, it's like you've either seen a kid on a BMX bike when you look at him and you say, "Oh, that seat's too low," and his knees are going up to his chin as he's pedaling down the street. There's a whole professional racing component to it. There's a popular culture component to it there's an industry side to it there's so many different angles it's not just it's like anything else so as soon as you look behind that door there's a whole mess of other doors there there's a whole community so some of the kids who i know you know working at high school they gravitate towards the bmx bikes because of the edge you know they seem a little bit more edgy a little bit more counterculture and yet at the same time, they don't understand where it's coming from. They have no idea where it fits into the, uh, into the bicycle world. If you showed them a, a big mountain bike, they might label it a BMX bike. They're not sure what the different parts that would make it that way are. I think that part of this conversation I really want to talk about is like, I'm an old guy, so I'm going to come from my perspective. When you say old school, mid school what are we talking about those time periods because i've tried to learn those sometimes from the skater dudes and they give me like 
the most uh, confusing kung fu movie type uh, <laughs> answers. You know, old school is what you make of it type of things, you know. And is there a definition for that stuff? Is it is it a changing definition or is there an actual definition for what's old school? Well, there's not a definitive year as far as I've discovered, but I, I do know that old school would be pre-19, you know, early 90s. Okay. Pre-early 90s. Mid school would be kind of mid 80s to about 2000 right around there and i could be corrected on this there's different opinions but those general years i think are pretty close in new school would be anything after 2000 maybe even after 2005 so those are those are basically the the generations if you if you will of bmx it's really important to note that there are there's really four different types of BMX. And I just experienced this the other day when I went to a skate park in, in Bristol, Connecticut. And the first thing a kid said to me was, can you tail whip? Can you bar, can you bar spin? <laughs> and I said, you know, I'm just here with my son. I'm just riding around the, the, the pool here, riding around the bowl. No, I don't do that stuff. I'm a BMX racer. You know, feel my leg muscles. <laughs> so, uh, so, uh, so I just rode the bowl a couple times. But, but really, what there what there is is there's BMX, just BMX racing, and then there's BMX street, which is raw BMX, just finding uh, do-it-yourself spots where you may add a piece of plywood. You may just use whatever. Uh, loading dock that you find or whatever it is um, that's true raw street riding and then there's actual fabricated parts so there's park riding and then the the last part about of BMX um, and, and certainly not the least is the underground trail riding which is a huge huge sport or part of BMX I should say that that really is is underrated in my opinion. The skill level of these guys as trail builders, let alone riders, is just absolutely amazing. It's uh, it's something that isn't publicized too heavy uh, because it's not always on on private land. It may be on public land in a hidden spot. Uh, but that type of riding is is just is just amazing. But those make up the four types of BMX. street riding right. is the stuff that most of the kids will think about because there's so many YouTube videos about it out there about a kid you find a planter and all yeah. of a sudden you do yeah. a trick on it and it's amazing stuff I mean those kids are amazing uh, with their balance you yeah know? if you think about it I mean it really comes down to accessibility and if I was a if I was a teenager at, in this day and age I would probably gravitate toward that naturally because it's accessible. Mm -hmm. I don't need a BMX track to do it. I don't need trails. I can use what's right there in front of me. Fortunately, there's a lot of parks now, skate uh, skate parks that can also be used for, for BMX. But yeah, I mean, it's there was a crossover period as well where that you speak of where there were lots of kids that raced bikes and rode 
trails. That lasted for quite a while until racing became very specific and the trail, there, there just aren't many, many riders that ride trails and race bikes, which is unfortunate because it's, it's, um, it's important to, to have both skills they complement each other but yeah it it's it's been around trails slash bmx racing but accessibility is has always been a huge huge issue and and we'll get to that for people who listen to my podcast i think they would tend to be a little bit like me in terms of like if somebody gave them a bike to try they'd smile and they'd jump on it no matter what kind of bike it is you know last year i got a chance to try a penny farthing oh my gosh and i was like woo! it it was like a dream come true you know Uh it's like there was a a great guy who helped us learn how to do it and go along like skateboarding and jump up and stuff and you know, it was amazing, and you you get to try. You just take a spin on a parking lot around somebody's like five thousand dollar carbon bike, and they're like, "Go ahead, take it, take it around the parking lot," and you're like, "Woo, I love it!" You know. Yeah. So when we talk about a BMX bike for those people who may have seen them around who, who never rode one before, the idea of having the small wheels, the idea of it being generally a smaller bike, is that it's uber maneuverable. It's very controllable. A lot of times mountain bikers, just as a point of reference, if they're riding extremely technical stuff, they'll go a frame size down for the technical stuff and a frame size up if they're doing like more smoother trails. So we're talking about a bike that you're able to do some incredible stuff with. So if you could talk a little bit about the whole design of a BMX bike in terms of what it's doing. In terms of what it's doing, BMX bikes are extremely maneuverable uh, to the point where you could almost call them touchy. You know, they're, they're, they can be a little twitchy if you're a taller rider. Uh, so say anyway, anywhere over five foot seven, maybe five foot eight, it becomes a twitchy type of bike. So you often see people that ride BMX that are getting closer to the six foot range. They'll either go to, now there's a 22 inch BMX bike available. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's in between sizes, or they'll just settle directly for a, a cruiser, a BMX cruiser 20. we call it, which is a 24 inch. So as agile as they are, what comes with it is the learning curve of maneuvering that bike, which is, which is uh, to answer your question, steeper head tube angles, shorter rear triangles, so that the bike can actually, so you can pull the front end up a little easier, because if you think about it, if the back end's long, it's very difficult to pull the front end up. So for point of purpose, yeah. like, for people who are familiar with like a touring bike or something like that, the the angles and the, the sizes and the geometry of the frame, it's not something you would want to ride 100 miles, although people do, you know, if you're just going in a straight shot, but to go over the rollers, you know, the hills, rapid hills, uh, to go over jumps, to go over technical uh, aspects of bends and berms and stuff like that this this bike is going to be really responsive it's going to it's going you're going to want that style of bike so it's it's kind of been engineered and it's grown into this thing that's going to help you to get through those specific technical challenges that's exactly right in uh, one other aspect of it that just occurred to me is when you race a BMX bike this is a short 
30 to 40 minute sprint, or I'm sorry, second sprint. So a 30 to 40 second sprint, it makes it that much more imperative to get a good start. So what people may not realize is that there's an actual starting gate. So it's a very static start. You're, you're in a position where you're balanced on a gate with seven other people if, if you have a full class. If you have a long bike, it's tough to get that machine going up to speed quickly. So that's another benefit of a smaller, agile bike mm -hmm. that you can really get cranked up to speed quickly rather than a long drawn out wheelbase. So yeah, very much very much like the, the comparison between a touring bike and a, and a crit bike, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. It's a bike that you want to throw around and get up to speed quickly. So what's going on in racing? So specifically with BMX racing, like we just had the cyclocross championships up here in Connecticut. And it was amazing and there were so many people who were like i didn't even know that's a sport and yet we have like these huge championships up here and people are blown away by it behind the curtain there's there's all kinds of levels of bmx racing that people could go watch or get involved in or perhaps even compete in bmx is the easiest sport to get into uh, i can tell you that it's no more difficult than it was in 1983 when i started than it was after I took a break in the in the 2000. I'm sorry, uh, 15. It's super easy. It's it's like every sport is or should be, where there's the beginner aspect, which they now call novice, and then it progresses to intermediate, and then expert, and then pro. You really they've they've really laxed on specific type of bikes that you have to have. It's most important to have. A helmet and have your legs covered and your arms covered that's it show up with your bmx bike with those with key safety features and you're good to go i mean you can't have a kickstand on the bike but otherwise the bike could have front brakes you know it could have onion you shouldn't have pegs on the bike either so it shouldn't be a full street or uh, park bike but you know they help you with the, that at the track and nowadays we've got loner bikes at the tracks so there's pretty tough to show up at a track and not be able to race. There's loner helmets, loner bikes. Uh, there's free one-day memberships that you can turn into a 30-day membership and then convert it into a full-year membership. Races are incredibly affordable. Uh, they are they range from six to ten dollars per event, and uh, there are four tracks in Connecticut. They are in Bethel and Trumbull, Meriden, which is nice and centrally located in Connecticut, mm -hmm. and Torrington, uh, which is actually a track that I had a hand in starting back in 1995. And that is the newest track. So we're talking over, we're talking 22 years on, on the newest track in Connecticut. So it's mm -hmm. I mean, it's been it's, around. there's pockets all over, but when you say Torrington in Connecticut, mm -hmm. like in terms of bikes, that's BMX neighborhood right there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that, that, that is. There's a lot of BMX up there, yeah, a lot of BMX fans. There is, there is. It's a very successful track. Uh, it was number one in the country for, for rider count for quite a few years in the, I want to say it was the early 2000s. My son and I just built up the, the BMX uh, we saw downstairs and uh, got a swap me, put some old school stuff, <laughs> and some, some newer stuff on it, and uh, went out to the skate park. 
just I put four pegs on it. I know that that's probably not right, but we went there and nobody seemed to call us out on it. And we tried riding a couple of the obstacles there and uh, it was fun. And it's just that that's that at the end of the day, you know, it's like I loved getting on it and just trying it and seeing how it was different from all the other bikes I have and uh, how it rolls and how it is very, very agile in terms of being able to turn those handlebars and get an immediate response as opposed to, you know, creeping up on it <laughs> and taking it by surprise. So if somebody wants to go maybe participate, mm -hmm. what are the big organizations across the country that they should go uh, do a search on? There's only one. Uh, oh, yeah, that's back, easy. Yeah, back when I started and up until 2007, I believe, uh, there were... Gosh, I may be wrong on that. Uh, right around 2007, there were two organizations, the National Bicycle League, which was primarily uh, mid-America uh, mid to East Coast, but it was out of Columbus, Ohio. That organization, that sanctioning body, we'll call them, lasted for, for quite a while. That uh, organization was taken over by the American Bicycle Association, which at that time changed the name to USA BMX. So USA BMX is NBL, National Bicycle League, and ABA, American Bicycle Association, combined. Okay. So there's only one sanctioning body, uh, simple in the way that you really only have to go to one, one, web, web, one website, which is usabmx.com if you want to find your local track because not all listeners are from this immediate area that we're in uh, you go to usa bmx and you just click on the tab for located track plenty of ways to discover bmx through that website there's riders in their 50s. We haven't completely the age groups that are available to the 61 and over age group, but there are plenty of five and unders all the way up to 61 and over. Uh, the availability is there for 61 and over, but what generally happens if is if one person that's 61 shows up and prim primarily that would be on a cruiser, a 24-inch cruiser, they would combine down to the next lowest age group. So you always have someone to raise. Uh, and this brings up another uh, another thought that I just had. Uh, push bikes have become a, a huge part of BMX. Push bikes at some tracks have flourished incredibly. So what push bikes are, they're for five and under. And so they're also called balance bikes. Uh, so this is a little bike with no pedals. Correct. And it's the ones you'll see online of kids learning how to how to ride a bike without training wheels by establishing balance before pedaling. So they'll basically get the idea if they push themselves, they stay upright and then they get the balance down and then the pedaling just, just falls into place as opposed to the way that most of us got taught, which is to learn how to pedal and then balance at some point, you right. know. Right. randomly randomly like monkeys and typewriters you'll eventually get it <laughs> it's it that's right it's it's a perfect progression really because what happens is with a push bike or a balance bike the the child gets used to that balance for yeah, 
she's push bike riders are as young as two years old. Mm -hmm. So they get used to it up until they're five or until they're comfortable enough to take a take on a pedal bike. Uh, so they progress as gradually as they want to up until five years old, which is typically an age where you can where you can really take a bike with pedals around the track. So it's super kid friendly, uh, perfect way to introduce a child into a sport and let them progress at whatever pace they're comfortable. Well, I know what I'm doing on my 71st birthday. I'm gonna go to the track. You could 61st. You could do. I'm gonna do. Well, I'm gonna do 71st. Oh, okay, you could do 71st. I mean, I, I want to be like really stick out like a sore thumb there. <laughs> Hopefully, I will be that sore thumb I'll on the be, track that day. They'll uh, have to collapse a collapse category for me. I'll be there with you. <laughs> all right, that's fine. <laughs> I love seeing how all these different bikes fit together in the tree of life of bikes, and the history of biking and where it's going because they all continue to evolve. It's like they get created, you know, the penny farthings, you know, you would think they're like dinosaurs, but they're not extinct. There's people making new penny farthings around the world and people enjoy riding them. So there's this continuum of bike riders who, whether they know it or not, are all using what I think is the greatest invention ever. I really appreciate talking to you about that, but before before we wrap up, I wanna ask you about some of your, uh, got any moments from your racing background? Any, any story from your years of racing that really stands out as like one that's like one of your favorite episodes? Oh boy. I mean, you raced a long time. I did, I did race a long time. I, I would say that, um, Probably a, a moment that I'll never forget is racing the world championships in Pontiac, Michigan at a track called Waterford Oaks. That was a, a race that doesn't come to the U.S. You know, every year it's, it's, it's shared around the, around the BMX world. Um, I did qualify for that event and I really didn't think I had a, a shot and he double hockey sticks but uh, <laughs> uh i i almost made the final i made it all the way to the uh to the semifinal and 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 uh and almost made it wow. to to the final eight which would have given me a world number but i have no regrets at all it was just a it was so incredible racing in the world championships in your own country so that that was amazing uh, brings me to a point that it does not happen in the U.S. very often, and it happens to be in the U.S. again this year. Okay. So it's in uh, Rock Hill, South Carolina, I believe, is where Rock Hill is. I'm probably wrong about that. It may be North Carolina. But anyhow, the, the World Championships are in July, late July. I believe it's July 25th, right around that weekend. It's a rare event. I know plenty of people are trying to qualify there are only so many spots available for U.S. riders, and uh, it's an event that that is just amazing. It's a it's it's much a personal accomplishment as it is a, a patriotic experience. So that, that was uh, for me back in '94 when I did it. It was it was amazing, and and this year I'm sure it will be equally as amazing. So how I'm, many countries uh, go about? Oh, roughly, I would say maybe 30. But uh, but it's it's 
it's full. I mean, it's packed. How, how does the U.S. stand up against those other countries this year? The U.S. does very well. The U.S. has a load of strong riders, but uh, Europe is, is extremely strong. South America is strong. There's a, there's a strong Asian contingent. It's, it's different than when I did it in the 90s, for sure. We, had, we definitely had Europeans in a little bit for South America, but but not to the level of today. So it's, uh, it should be, I think there's quite a bit more parity than there was um, back in the 90s. It's, the U.S. does tend to walk away with the most top finishes, um, but BMX did pretty much uh, start in the U.S., so it's a, and it's a, it's a very popular U.S. sport. Oh, and I forgot to mention Australia. Australia is really coming on strong, too. They've always had strong riders for the size of, of the country, and including New Zealand. They, they've really produced some amazing riders. So uh, it, it's it's an amazing thing to have the world championships in your own country. I mean, anybody that we've left out, it's amazing to get to that yeah. level to be invited to go there or to be qualifying to go there. So we're not going to say, oh, this country is rubbish. They yeah, don't yeah, belong yeah. there. They, if we missed you... So Sorry, you, you get all the props. All the other countries that are there, good job. Well done. Right. Good right. job getting into that. No, absolutely. So. Last thing, favorite bike these days? Favorite bike. Well, I'm having a custom bike built right now by the uh, FBM bike company up in, uh, I believe they're Ithaca, New York, but they've done custom bikes for quite a while as well as production run bikes currently riding a Holt bike which is more of a street bike but i adapted it into a, a race bike um, and that's but, this one right here yeah that's the and one that, i have with me that's today we'll put some pictures up sure people to look at yeah that would be great uh as far as a favorite bike geez you know um i've had lots of lots of favorites i, I wish i had them all still but i'd have a basement you like have yours still? How many do you have? Seen? Not many. Not oh, many. Man. Actually, you know, come to think of it, one of my look bad. Yeah, one of my favorite bikes is a bike that I've I've kind of taken on as a as a fundraising vehicle, uh, literally. It's which is a side hack bike. I I have two side hack bikes, and those are my favorite. Not because it's particularly enjoyable to drag a, a someone around that's riding on the sidecar, because that's pretty tiring, but it's a uh, it's such a fun it's such a fun time when when i put on these side hack fundraising events yeah they're they're cool looking i mean yeah. once again it's another bike that i would love to ride you know maybe if you want you could bring one of them to our bike show in in june sure yeah. i would love to just tool around with one of those and see what it's like oh yeah uh, they're, they're so much fun and and really side hacks have been around for a long time they used to race them in california in the in the late 70s so it's it's not a new idea but it died off for quite a while yeah, I had no idea they went back that far yeah yeah they went back really far and and i decided when i came back into the sport that i wanted to turn my efforts into to fundraising for bmx riders in need and that uh inadvertently became a perfect vehicle for fundraising because it's something unique and it's it's easy to get people to want to try something different so uh so i use them at, at an annual fundraising event that we have and and this year's fundraising event is on July 16th at the Trumbull track. And we'll have side hacks there and as well as adults racing uh, pit bikes, they're called, which are 16-inch wheel bikes uh, racing the track backwards. And <laughs> we do all kinds of fun things like that. So 
uh, and this year is um, benefiting a, a street writer uh, by the name of Scotty Kramer, which uh, he was he was hurt pretty seriously and is is basically learning how to walk again right now. So you'll see the bikes there as well if you happen to be around on July 16th at the Trumbull track. Where would people go to look that up online? Uh, that's a tough one. That's you probably have one. to. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's it's a self-driven uh, uh, event, so it's um, it's something that I continue to post about. On. How about how about I'll share the info? Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. I I often post about it on Instagram. That seems to be my most effective way of of getting word out among the BMX community. Grom Dad 2000, and the meaning behind that is my son was a Grom surfer slash skater at the time that I started that handle and he was born in the year 2000 so it's Grom Dad 2000 so that's the easiest way to get a hold of me and, and follow whatever I'm up to and uh, on that page you will find lots of posts of archive footage from old school mid school and today new school and that and that Volkswagen van that got away yeah. <laughs> yes. And the Volkswagen van that, that uh, probably am happy that I don't have, but <laughs> it would probably be on fire in front of your house right now. <laughs> Some carburetor issues. But uh, All right. Anyhow. Well, I love talking to you about this. Um, maybe we'll see you again at some point uh, on the show and talk about some more stuff. Um, Joe Doherty, thank you very much. And uh, we'll see you around. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. another random thought from the side of the road when you're channeling some of the greats like Eddie Merckx or, or Greg Lamont can they feel that I mean like really do they get like this Obi-Wan Kenobi like there's a strange disturbance in them oh it's like hundreds of overweight middle-aged men are going up a hill their legs screaming in pain can can you can they feel that if you're if you're one of the greats you know you can uh, DM me and let me know if that is uh, something that really happens or if that's just something I'm I'm imagining. Ooh, geese. For the next segment, please bear with the different sound problems. There's a great story underneath about a man moving big things with his bike. It's an unseasonably warm January Sunday morning. We're sitting in my dining room. So, it's Sunday morning. It's after 8. Normally I wouldn't be rising for many, many hours. And yet I'm up on a Sunday morning with a cup of joe with Chris Brown, my good friend who knows more about bikes than me. And I'm okay with that. Chris, you got a cup of coffee here. We're going to get a washing machine. And I offered to let you use my truck, but yet you want to use your bicycle to go get a washing machine from Craigslist. Why are we doing that, Chris? If we went and got a washing machine with a pickup truck, we wouldn't have a story afterwards. That's kind of boring. That's true. That's true.
Um, if we got a washing machine with a pickup truck, we wouldn't be any like you know incrementally healthier or like stronger afterwards. Now, for the people who don't know me yet out there, I'm not paying you to do this on a bed or anything like that. This is this is all you. This is all me. Yeah. Okay. So you want the washing machine and the story. And you do actually need a washing machine. You I don't do. just need the story. Yeah, no, I've been without a washing machine for over a year. Okay. All right. So um, that's interesting. And it's also to some degree an exercise in independence. And I got a little sort of reminder yesterday because I went to go get it yesterday. And my crappy old iPhone 4S that doesn't like holding a charge managed to go from 100 to zero in the six and a half miles it took me to get near the house of the Craigslist seller of an 80s Maytag washing machine. And I had neglected to bring a map or write it down. So I got within a few blocks, as it turns out, of the guy's house and had no idea where to go. So that was a little lesson to me. You could have phoned a friend. With oh, wait. Dead phone. Wait, you couldn't phone a friend because your phone was dead. Yeah. I couldn't. And I stopped by one friend's house in Weathersfield, but his truck was gone and he was getting a haircut or something. What time was that? Um, I don't know. The clock is on the phone. But probably about 9.30, 10, something like that. Yeah, that was the haircut time. Yeah, no, it's yeah. fine. So, so I left the trailer in, on some random cul-de-sac locked to a signpost, which was, again, sort of fun because it just sort of messes with people's heads. So assuming it wasn't called in... thinking gypsies are moving in. <laughs> assuming it wasn't called in to... Looking up the security. ancient laws for squatting rights yeah. and stuff like that, yeah. I'm, I'm hoping it will still be there 24 hours later. Yeah, So that, and the other thing is, you know, so, so we've become really dependent on, on these phones. I mean, as, as sort of marvelous as they are in many ways, and maybe a little too much so. In my case, yesterday, it was a little reminder of that. Um, we've become, as a society really dependent on motor vehicles more than we should and and i say this as someone who is a total gearhead like it's it's yeah, and i it's mean you strange... like the mechanicals i do we I have know. the same favorite car we both would pick a modified superbug from volkswagen from the 70s you know super beetle yeah so yeah so you you do appreciate them but there's a challenge to it that i think you're rising to yeah and it's it's one of those things where you know, you feel it deeply. And that's part of the, I mean, been part of the appeal of, so it's, I think it's been, I don't know, eight or so years, eight or nine years that I've had the cargo bike. And it's still kind of, it's just really fun to, to sort of take on the challenge of, can I carry this load using a bicycle? And yesterday I used, I picked up two eight foot tall shelving units um, just using the bike. Um, they were disassembled, obviously, but but I was able to take everything except for the actual, you know, wooden platforms that were the shelving. So we can assemble the shelves, you know, eighty five percent based on what was I was able to just tether to a bicycle, which is kind of ridiculous and kind of fun. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting, and it's it is noble that you're trying to do these things using your own power. So, yeah, so we're going to get a washing machine by bike. It's not the Portlandia skit. Uh, have you seen the Portlandia skit? I have. Yeah, and with, and most people watch it, and they call those funny Portland people moving things by bike, and you like, think, 
Yeah. I also thought it was funny. I mean, yeah. um, I've, I've done, I actually did the, I, I wrote a post about it in the Beat Bike, Bike blog years ago called Wrong Hall Trucking, where I, w- I had been invited to display cargo bike stuff because a small, low-key company of selling cargo bikes every once in a while over the years. And I had, I think the week before, to- used the bike in the trailer in the real ride for real art ways. So I had a friend and DJ equipment and a sound system on the trailer for 10 miles. And it was great. And it was fun. So the, the market was in Coventry. And I looked on the map and it was like, oh, it's like 20 miles. So it's like two real rides. So I'll just mm-hmm. budget. And, and actually the stuff I was carrying was less weight than a grown adult and a sound system. So I figured, all right. And the thing I didn't really totally comprehend was, was just how much hillier it was out there. Oh, it's damn hillier. It's hillier by car. I yeah. get nervous by car when I go out there. And I just, as I got further and further, I was like, I'm not even going to, like, first I'm like, I'm going to be late. And I was like, I'm pretty much going to miss the farmer's market. And and I got there as they were packing up. And, and I kept going for two reasons. One was that I knew I had some farmer friends that potentially might have been there so that I could say, could I my crap in your truck um, <laughs> whom I unfortunately missed but also because I, I at, at some point I just figured you know what this is going to be the only thing I do today the only thing I set out to do that I have a chance of still succeeding in doing is riding a bike with a trailer from Hartford to Coventry so if nothing else <laughs> I want to succeed in the, this one remaining thing that I've attempted today. And um, so I made it, and I got there, and I rolled out a blanket that I had brought to sort of, you know, display helmets and stuff on. And and I took a nap, and it was a wonderful nap out in a field in Coventry. I called my girlfriend, who, you know, along with some reminders of how much of an idiot she thought I was for doing this, agreed to come out later in her Civic, and we loaded everything that was on the trailer except for a brand new cargo bike so so then i rode back just towing a trailer that had riding a cargo bike towing a trailer with one cargo bike so much lighter load and rode back to hartford so that was kind of that was a, a lesson in biting off more than i could chew and also it was a thing that uh, convinced me to build a uh, to switch to dynamo lighting mm-hmm. um, so i built a a dynamo front wheel for the cargo bike after that because somewhere around somewhere between Coventry and Manchester my battery started getting kind of dim and and which you don't notice nearly as much in Hartford where there's street lights everywhere yeah and um, but it was like wow it is just it's, it's just really dark, dark. <laughs> yeah so I decided so that was kind of another little sort of exercise and lesson in in you know independence and self-containment of well if I if riding along generates the light I need, then I don't have to worry about that. There's, there's like a there's like a flow chart for worrying about your lighting. First is like, oh, it's getting really dark, and then you're like, I can't see all the details in the road anymore. And then you get down to, I hope people can see me with all my all my reflectors are there, right? Right? Did I put that extra reflective decal on it? And then. You're kind of down at that. I just need to get home. Yeah, yeah before like, the darkness envelops me. Yeah, yeah. And and around Manchester it was also because then I could get onto the bike path, which was also pitch dark. So it was kind of like, yeah. well, I'm less in danger of being hit by a motor vehicle 
but I really can't see anything. Yeah, there's skunks and ruts and the occasional boulder put up in the middle of the road, gates. Skunks, ruts, rutting skunks. Rutting skunks, yeah. I've never seen rutting skunks. I don't know if it's called rutting for skunks. Yeah. Or just amorous. We've seen the same skunk on numerous occasions at the same spot in the trail. She comes uh-huh. out, and I think it's part of her amusement. I mean, if you were a small mammal with a limited lifetime, I think I would harass cyclists as well, see their fear in their eyes. Or it could be a survival thing, like she's you know outlived all the other skunks that thought they'd try to harass motor vehicles. Mm. Mm-hmm. So just kind of showing that she can do something that other skunks wouldn't normally do. It's it's again it's kind of a lesson in biting off not biting off more than you can chew. So it's kind of like you and the skunk have something in common. <laughs> Gonna just fight the trends, start running away. You're charging right at it. I don't. I don't. Has has. I think that's the first time someone's kind of you know in a sideways fashion suggested that the skunk might be my spirit animal. But I think you maybe just did. It's not a bad one. Or totem maybe. It's, it's not just a bad one. They're very animal. smart. They're misunderstood in some ways. Not by me. I understand the skunk. We're good. All they're, right. They're black and white. Yep. Unity. There's no gray area. Right? Uh, we're going to have another cup of coffee. Let you use the chain tool. Move on. How, you, how are you going to accomplish this? What's the plan? Um, plan is to ride to random cul-de-sac a mile or so away, maybe two miles, and retrieve my trailer and hook it up and then go to Craigslist dude's house say I'm here for the washing machine. What kind of trailer? Did you buy a specific bicycle trailer for hauling large appliances? It's a bikes at work trailer. Okay. It was their sort of best combination of long and wide. So it's the wider width that they have and maybe the second longest length they sell. And um, So does it look like a bob but wider or is it is it totally different? It's basically a, it's they're modular, which is sort of neat. So it's it's aluminum extrusions. It's a ladder frame. Okay. That I just have a piece of plywood sitting. But it, does it hook on just like a kid's trailer? There, this one normally their stock hitch attaches to the left rear chain stay and seat stay, kind of mm-hmm. near the near the rear dropout. In my case with the cargo bike, because there's a sort of an outrigger rack there. That didn't work, so I mounted their sort of swivel part of their hitch to a door hinge that I bolted to the frame of the cargo bike. So we're we, I mean, you MacGyvered that. So not only are we, we're going, we're going to do some creative engineering test, load stress, yeah, door handle mounting. Okay, it's. I mean, it's a very. It was a well done door hinge. Like it's a really. No, I yeah, it's a massive. I wouldn't thing. expect any any less. From yeah, you. no, the really really <laughs> old, totally worn out bike chain is the thing that we're mostly load testing because because I really I about a year and a half ago, it went beyond. I should replace this to see. Let's just see how long this will actually last. This is this is why we want to yeah. bring a chain tool along. Okay, got it. All right, well, let's uh, enjoy some coffee and then uh, get on our way. So do you want me to be like a UN observer and just like totally hands off just watching it? Or do you <laughs> want my help if needed? Um, the only place that I would, if it's getting dicey, there's a, there's a one block bit of Wells Road that if 
if I think I'm gonna, you know, start rolling backwards and you wanna like you, you wanna know, run throw away. a hand on the uh but I think Is I'll it like fine. a nature movie where if you know you see the zebra getting eaten by the alligator you just stand back and film it or do you want me <laughs> to jump in and be like, No <laughs> I mean just make that call now so I'm clear. So if it starts to go, I'm gonna help. Um Yeah, I guess. Okay. Yeah. All right. We set off, Chris on his Yuba utility cargo bike, and me, running point, on my Surly Crosscheck, heading up towards Ridge Road. So we got our own little critical mass going this morning. Oh yeah. Two giant bikes. At least it's not raining. Would you do it in the rain? Probably because like, I'd really just always be... You're always warm. If you're towing some large thing on a bicycle. Yeah. So even if it's raining, you're not really cold. And wet. I mean, it's less fun. But, I don't know what else we do in January apart from moving yeah. large appliances. January in New England's all about that. So this, you see these breadcrumbs? It's like every few feet there's bread. Huh. Well, there's there's some other stuff there that's <laughs> inappropriate, but. <laughs> Bread and condoms. That was a campaign. Product. Yeah. <laughs> About every hundred feet, there was a crumb of bread yesterday. Thought some little kids had been kidnapped. But then the bread trail ended, so I figured they must be okay. Hey, there's a guy with a big Jeep and a trailer that just went by and then there's you yes. Boy, is he missing out. yeah insulated from all this now for the only time that we were honked at in the entire three four hours Yeah. They're all these sort of funky flat top things. Now I'm blanking on what the street was. Yeah, that's gonna be that's gonna be hard. No, Because no, without no. that trailer you're gonna We're gonna go right on Nathaniel. Oh really? Yeah. Okay. This is not to go to the house, this is to get the trailer. Yeah. Yeah, you picked a doozy of a street to leave it on. These people probably didn't sleep all night. Yeah, you deprived this whole neighborhood of their REM sleep, my friend. I'm here to help. I'm going to grab one shot of it just left there. <laughs> it's okay. Oh, you got one of those locks. How do you find it? I love it. Yeah? 
Yeah. Chris had pulled out one of those $99 tiger locks. It's super late. Does titanium actually work with the grinding wheels? Um, I haven't tried cutting it. They should always give you two locks when you buy one. One so they can mess with it and the other one so they can use it. Cool, I saw these the other day. Tiger. They're, made, they're from New Jersey, so I feel like there's some. Now, could you just carry me to the move with my bike? You could just put me on the back of your trailer. That way I won't have to pedal. Not taking it. It was here without the weight on the back that the noise of the trailer started getting really loud. I could just get one wheel up on his uh, trailer, I wouldn't have to pedal anymore. Just do a track stand. But... So the road conditions weren't really that bad, but he had a lot of rattling going on. And we weren't even hitting like potholes or anything like that, so I was a little worried about how steady this was going to be when he actually started to put some weight on there. Take your first left up here if you want. I'm kind of familiar with where we are now, I, so if you want to add some Strava segments on to this while we're doing it, we can. Fancy statuary and stuff. It's a lot of nice stonework. There's some artistic. There's one guy who has a bunch of cement mushrooms in front of his house. It's the artist colony side of Weathersfield. Bulldog, squirrel. Oh no, that's an actual squirrel. We make a right. Yeah, and then we'll make a left. I'll drop behind you if you know where you're going. A couple minutes later, we rolled up to the guy's house. How's it going? You made it up? Oh my god. You'd be able to take it in this? How you doing? Hi, yeah? Tom. Hi, Tom. I'm Mike. How are you guys? Good. Oh, wow. <laughs> Where do you live? Hartford. Gosh. Did you get... Well, you probably can. Well, it would be good exercise, eh? <laughs> All right, let's go it's in the back here. Come on. We went back into the basement to go get it and then brought it into the driveway after right. a lot of manhandling. Let's keep it, keep it down there. So, otherwise. Once in the driveway next to the cart, it turned into a wow. physics problem for Chris. I'm curious how you're going to be able to get it home. <laughs> Me too. I'll be filming it and recording it. Now, uh, do you live like on the first level or? Yeah. All right, so you're probably able to. Let's, let's just get it like right behind the trailer. Okay. And kind of go up and oh, forward. Kind of let it tip over like that. Yeah. 
and it was on. It's more stable. It's, it's almost like a, like the trucks with the fifth, year, fifth wheel. Yeah. Where they got the hitch in the bed. Yeah, so, I see. To try to have it, it's more stable if it's forward of the rear axle, but I couldn't do that on this one, but this is so heavy that it doesn't matter too much. Yeah, yeah. Good luck. Thanks. Good luck. Hey, thank you. Nice to meet you. Thank you. Yeah, nice meeting you both. Checking that site. Thank you. Sure. See ya. We were on our way back and noticeably quieter. Okay. So, do you find it's heavier? A scale of 1 to 10. How would you, in compared to what? Um, just like 10 being too much to, to carry by bike. Um, I'd say for an unassisted bike. He rated it a 5 out of 10. That's good. Yeah. So you can carry two of these. Yeah. So what you don't know is we've actually lined up another washing machine to stack on top of this one just in case you answered that way. Excellent. So if you make a right up here, washing machine number two. On no. Uh, just keep going straight. We'll go back to order again. But you can noticeably tell this is the same road we were on before. It was making a ton of noise. Now it's wicked quiet. Right now I'm sitting on the washing machine. Can you feel that? I'm gonna go ahead and take a shot of you coming. It was here that we reached our first audience. Hey. What's that? Hartford, an apartment in Hartford. Oh, okay. Thanks. So up here, we're gonna make a right and then a left. Pace had gotten a lot slower, but understandably so, as we made our way down the same streets we had come up on at about five miles per hour slower. All of a sudden, we were a lot more aware of the hilly terrain around. So if you look to this side, you'll see what you're gonna be dealing with to get up. The good news is, just like this, you get a little down to start getting up speed before you go over. And I'll give you a heads up before that, you should be able to make it. It is busy, so you'll be going, like as soon as you get over the hill, it goes into a two-way a four-way stop with two lanes on your side. Even though the pedaling was getting harder, mostly for Chris, I found something I didn't expect that day, which was, I mean, my mind started wandering, just like when I was a kid, going just to go and not really worrying about my speed. And then you'll be on ridge. Yep. For Chris, it was a semi-Herculean task that he had taken on. For me, it was a glorious slow roll. I get it now. I totally get the whole idea behind the slow roll. It's really cool and mellow. Yep, so you're gonna go down, pick up some speed. As soon as you get over the crest of that hill down there, you're gonna wanna get towards your left because it's a left lane and then a four-way stop to turn left on the ridge. 
Yep, it seemed like putting the extra weight on Chris's bike had taken the monkey off of my back. And no longer was I worried about PRs or course segments or anything like that. I was just daydreaming, pedaling, looking around. You want to stop by the house or are you good? All right. I was having flashbacks and daydreams of my childhood. The type of bike rides where you'd get out on the bike with your cousins just to get out of the house for the day. Going no particular place, just out there riding. Occasionally you find something cool and you try and get it home on your bicycle. And that's essentially what we were doing big guy style. Yeah, you got up some speed there. It really, it, as much as it accentuates the uphills, the downhills is like, it feels like a turbo lag keeping it. The next weirdest thing was just how normalized we had become. Cars were passing us, giving us plenty of room. It was like the world just kind of moved over a little bit to let us be a part of it. People were aware of us occasionally waving and whatnot, but it was not that big of a deal. We were normalized. Bringing stuff around by bikes was now a part of the cityscape. so slow I can even play Pokemon. Oh, I see a free couch ahead. Thinking about it? He wasn't, but if I bet him a few dollars, I bet he would have done it just to show he could. Chris is that type of guy. Somewhere around 75% done with our journey, Chris asked me if I wanted to try it, but I felt he should finish the whole thing. What's up? Did you want to try this at all? Oh, sure. I mean, it's up to you. I mean, I, I think you need to own it. I think, think you're going to be the... Rocky Balboa at the end. Can't take a couple punches. I did the kids on the bike trailer, so I know. Chris did an amazing job strapping the thing down. Even though it would make hitting noises like you just heard, it wasn't going anywhere. It was really secure, and the only thing that really seemed to be our enemy was momentum. He certainly picks up some speed on the downhills. Nice. <laughs> like 
The last couple minutes we had our biggest audience as we made our way into the city. away from Chris's house now and I realized Strava may or may not be on I had no idea what speed we were making I had no idea exactly what the distance was and I didn't really care had a fun time it was just kind of a little adventure that we had gone on together thanks Alright, let's get the victory shot here. Alright, arms in the air? No? Yeah? There you go. He's good? How yeah. you feel? What's that? How you feel? You're good. minor celebrity dumb. <laughs> See, that was like, that's part of the fun. Like, yeah. just random people are like, excited about moving the washing machine. <laughs> It was a good uh, smooth mission. I, I was I'm grateful for your local knowledge for that less steep way back. Now, that's my knowledge of me just being lazy. Say so. that's that's valuable knowledge. Yeah. And now it's time for another random thought from the road. You know, I bought a pair of cycling gloves. Got a good deal on them, like 22 bucks on Amazon. Got them home, threw them into the wash. Didn't even wear them once. One glove went missing. It's haunted me for over a year. I've wasted far too much time thinking about this glove. When we were getting onto a plane to go to Iceland and all your life flashes before your eyes as the plane lifts off, I'm thinking to myself, is anybody going to know that that's not a single glove, that somewhere there is another glove that goes along with that? That's kind of messed up. wonder if other cyclists think about stuff like that. Anyway, thoughts from the road. So it's February 26th in New England and it's just after sunset. I can hear all the peepers. It's a beautiful life. Thanks for coming along for the ride. You've been listening to episode 14 of Bike Karma and the Bike Karma podcast by Tom Brown. All rights reserved. Want to thank Keller Glass and Mobjack Music, as always, for our awesome introductory and ending theme songs. Thank you to Joe Doherty and Chris Brown. 
and thank you for coming along for the ride. If you are anywhere near Connecticut in June, come to the Weathersfield, Connecticut Bicycle Show, Swap Me, and Festival. It is something that I helped put on, and it is basically the only fundraiser for the WHS, the Weathersfield High School Bicycle Club. If you want to be a vendor or a seller, it's only $25 per spot. Everybody else, it's free. It's in the AM on Sunday, June 11th, and it's at Hamner Elementary School. Last year, we had bikes from 1865 all the way up into the Velomobiles of the future. If you aren't able to make it to the swap meet, um, please consider checking out the wish list that the WH Bicycle Club has on the Amazon Marketplace. So just go to Wishlist and WHS Bicycle Club. You'll see a bunch of stuff there that's a lot of it's under $10, just different things to help keep the club riding. We would really appreciate that. So thank you very much. As always, the podcast itself is always free and just doing it out of love for bicycles and the people that have met through the hobby. Um, if you want to support the podcast, please go right now and leave a review on iTunes or Podbean or Stitcher. Or if you want to be a trifecta, do all three and you will totally make my day. So if you've liked any of the episodes, please give us a review and a follow. It really helps to get us up in the rankings and helps us to catch fire in that way. And to those ends, thank you to Melina Jess and Forever Summer 6 for following us on Podbeam. So as the snow melts and we all get back out there, no matter where you are, if you're on the road, trail, or path, you are an ambassador for the entire cycling community, so keep it classy. Next episode is the April 1st comedy episode. It's a short one, but you can go back and listen to last year's if you want. Try and get it done before April 1st. Hopefully see you then. Till then, thank you for coming and keep it wheel. Hush tones quiet.